invite you to stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading is from Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, for those of you who are new, my name is Chris, and I serve as the lead pastor here at First City. Uh, let me just add my welcome and say we are glad that you are here. And if there are ways that we can pray for you, we can uh, meet practical needs, if we can answer questions about First City Church, about the Bible, about what it means to follow Christ, anything at all, we would love to be able to do that. Whether you are someone who's confident in your faith looking for a church home, whether you're someone who's unsure of what you're believing, you, you're wrestling through that, or maybe you wouldn't claim faith at all at this point in your life, wherever you are, we would love to welcome you further into the life of First City Church. We'd love to extend hospitality to you right where you are, so uh, please get connected. Stop by the welcome table, hop on Church Center, grab me uh, or Pastor Kyle or Pastor Paul after the, the service. We'd love to meet you uh, and, and be able to take you out for a cup of coffee or get a free lunch out of it. I mean, come on, I'm, I'm pretty fun to hang out with, so um, let, me, let me buy you uh, lunch or breakfast or a cup of coffee. Love to be able to do that. Uh, if you, or sorry, I almost forgot. I have, a, I have an announcement this morning too. <laughs> and this is actually an important one. So if I haven't forgotten this one, this would have been unfortunate. So one of the things that, that as a church that we are continuing to want to grow in is prayer. And as, as Pastor Kyle mentioned, there are different ways that we do that, whether it's praying in gospel communities, uh, praying on Sunday mornings. And we also like to hold prayer gatherings throughout the year. And we've done this in some various ways uh, over the years, and to kind of finish out this year, we, we would, we're going to try something. We're going to see, see how this goes. But uh, we would, the, so, so the staff of First City Church would like to invite you all to pray with us before our staff meetings the second Monday of October, November, and December. And so we're going to, as a staff, our staff meetings are at 8.30, but we're going to get together at the church building a little earlier, so at 6.30 in the morning. So from 6.30 to 7.15, uh, we're going to spend some time in prayer for the church, and we would love to have you all join us. And so if uh, you, you want to pray for the church, you want to gather with some other believers to pray, you want to gather with the staff, because we're kind of cool to hang out with, uh, come and let's just spend some time together in prayer. We, we want to make this, I know it's a little bit early in the morning, but we want to make it so that you can come and pray and, and get on with your day uh, as, as your schedule will, will take you. Uh, so we'd love to have you join. And so the, next, the, the, the time we're going to do this, so second t Monday, second Monday uh, in October, 6.30 in the morning at the church building, would love to have you join us. Now, if you haven't opened your Bibles to Exodus 20, please do so. And the title of my message this morning, No Other Gods. Not a very creative title, but No Other Gods. And here's one of the things that I want to I emphasize this morning, is that loyalty is a powerful motivator of our behavior. Loyalty shapes our behavior in ways that few things can and do. Loyalty drives a father to work hard for his family. Loyalty drives a mother to stay up all night with a sick child. Loyalty will cause you to stand by a friend in the midst of immense suffering or defend them when they're being attacked. Loyalty will cause a soldier to sacrifice his life for his country and rather die than leave another soldier behind. Loyalty produces in us a deep commitment. We will extend a lot of energy and effort. We will work hard. We will endure suffering and trial and hardship when we are loyal to someone. Loyalty produces in us deep commitments. Loyalty produces in us an obedience. Not, not just a surface-level obedience where, where I behave on the outside, but on the inside, I'm grumbling and I'm fighting and I'm complaining. But no, but loyalty, true loyalty, produces a heart-level obedience where I obey because I want to. My obedience comes from this place of I desire that because I am loyal to you. 
You matter. I am committed. All in. And so here's what we can say. Who you are most obedient to, or who you are most loyal to, is who you are most obedient to. And who you are most obedient to is who you are most loyal to. So if I want to know who you are most loyal to, I will look at who you are most obedient to. Obedience and loyalty. These two are deeply connected and entwined. And it's from that truth that we are going to jump into the Ten Commandments this morning. We are going to slow down in our series in Exodus, and we're going to look at each commandment. We're going to take a week to look at each commandment. And so for the next ten weeks, we are going to be looking at just exactly what God calls his people to do in these commandments. Now to set a little bit of context for us again, and especially if, you, if you're new and you haven't been with us, we've been going through a series in the book of Exodus and coming to chapter 20. Uh, we've spent the past couple weeks in, in chapter 19, and so what has happened is God has rescued and redeemed Israel out of Egypt. He's bringing them through the wilderness, and now they are at the foot of Mount Sinai. And as we saw last week, the Lord has descended on the mountain. He set the mountain on fire And he is going to covenant with his people. He's entering into a deep relationship with them. And he's going to give them his law to to outline, hey, this is what it means to be my people. This is what it looks like to live in relationship with me. So he's giving them the very law that is going to shape them as a holy people. And as the Lord told Israel in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, there's great blessing for observing, for obeying. There's great blessing for obedience to his covenants. And so he's going to spell out, hey, this is what obedience means. This is what it looks like. And the Lord starts here in the first commandment with this important truth. And here's the main idea for us this morning, is that true obedience begins with loyalty. True obedience begins with loyalty. So as we spend the next 10 weeks looking at each of the commandments to really understand them and understand what it means to live them out. We have to start here. As we're going to see a little bit later, if we don't get this first thing in right, if we don't understand where the 10 commandments starts, then how we live them out is going to be off. And so to put it in a positive way, when we understand this commandment, when we understand that true obedience begins with loyalty, it will affect how we live out the Ten Commandments. It will cause us to walk in obedience from a place of loyalty. Now, before we we look at the first commandment specifically, I want to highlight a few things about the Ten Commandments overall. So in Exodus 20, verse 1, this is what we read. Then God spoke all these words. So before the Ten Commandments are written down, God speaks them. And what's interesting is this is the first, or this is the only time, I should say, this is the only time where God speaks to all of Israel in the book of Exodus. Every other time he speaks to them, he speaks to them through Moses. Why is that? Well, we see at the end of chapter 20, the voice of God put so much fear into Israel. They're like, hey, hey, God, talk to Moses. He can handle this. You talk to him. If you keep talking to us, we're all going to die. So talk to him and he will talk to us. But in this moment, as God is making a covenant with his people, as he lays out sort of the framework of this covenant, he's speaking to all of them. He's speaking to all of them. And this emphasis on speaking in words is important because while we call these the Ten Commandments, it's a perfectly fine thing to call them, the word, the Hebrew word commandment isn't in this text. It's literally the ten words. This is where we get the term decalogue. Maybe you've heard the Ten Commandments called the decalogue. Ten words. The emphasis is on God's word, God speaking. God is a speaking God. He's a God who relates to his people. He communicates to them. He he gets near them and draws them into relationship by speaking to them, by giving him be giving them his word. And that's where this starts. The law emphasizes and starts from this place. This is the word of God. God is giving his word to his people. And as the people of God, they are to be people who are shaped by his word. God's word shapes us and instructs us and forms us. 
It makes promises and warns us. It is our life, the word of God. To be devoted, to be loyal to God means to be devoted and loyal to his word. And so God makes very clear, the scriptures make very clear, right out of the gun here, that Israel, the people of God, then the people of God today, we are a people who are led by and shaped by and are obedient to God's word. Now here's a cool little feature of the Ten Commandments. If you look at each of the commandments, there is an instruction. And the instruction is first, second person singular. You guys know second? You guys, you guys, you're, so should I put on your grammar hat here? So second person singular. Like if I come up to a singular person and I say you, if I go up to my wife and I say you, I'm talking to one person, second person. How is it that God is speaking to a group of people in first person? Or second person, excuse me. How is it that when God is speaking to a group, he is addressing them as if he's addressing one person? Well, this is a cool little feature. It's also first or second person masculine. This is a cool feature. Why is he doing this? Well, if you remember back when God is rescuing, Egypt, or rescuing Israel out of Egypt, what does he call Israel? My son. My son. Get this. God in all his glory. Mountains on fire. This is the word of the Lord. The people can barely handle this. So the glory and the power and the authority of God are on display. But how is God speaking to his people? Like a father speaks to his son. Like this is the heart of God for us. A father speaking to his son. He's instructing them. He's giving them his word. This is how much love God has. This is how much the people of God, the Israel means to him. You are my son. You are a child. I am your father. That's how God is relating to his people. Now, a question we may ask is, why are there 10 commandments? Why 10? Well, in scripture, the number 10 represents completion, perfection. It represents a firm and securely established foundation. And so by giving them 10 commandments, 10 words, God is communicating that this is the perfect and complete law. This perfectly captures what it means to walk in righteousness and goodness and holiness and obedience. So if you ever have the question, what does it mean to walk in truth and goodness and righteousness? Where can I find a perfect law? Go to the Ten Commandments. If, if you want to walk, if you want your life to be shaped in perfect goodness and righteousness and truth and holiness, keep the Ten Commandments. God's law is perfect. It's complete. It is a firm and secure foundation. And in the Ten Commandments, God's moral law is sort of the essence of the law is captured. And this is an important piece because you will sometimes hear people say that the Ten Commandments aren't for Christians. That's Old Testament, not New Testament. Here's the problem with that. Well, there's a lot of problems with that, but let me just sort of digest this down into sort of a simple explanation. Okay, yes, there are plenty of laws and rituals that you read in the Old Testament that we no longer observe. Why? Because they were shadows, they were signs, and Christ fulfilled them. It's not just because, well, that's just what Israel did back in the day. No, it's because Christ fulfilled them. They were meant to point to Jesus, and Jesus fulfilled them. But what hasn't changed? The moral core. Though the specific case law and the specific rituals have passed, the morality, the moral core, the essence of all of those things have not passed. God is still the same God. Same righteousness, same goodness, same holiness. So the Ten Commandments, they represent that moral core, and so they are very much for us, as much as for us as they were for Israel. If you look at the moral commands of the New Testament, what framework do they follow? The Ten Commandments. When Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount, what was he doing? He was giving a sermon and a lesson on the Ten Commandments. This is the moral core for us as the people of God today, just as much as it was for the people of God then. This is why, friends, this is why we can sing with the psalmist, how I love your law. 
It is my meditation day and night. We love God's word. As the people of God, we love his word. We love his righteousness. We love his goodness. We love his truth. His word has come to us, and we delight in it. We're shaped by it. We let it be the thing that guides our life. Loyalty to God is loyalty and obedience to his word, and that all is captured and communicated right here at the beginning. Now, let's consider the first commandment specifically. So the first commandment, the first of the ten words, is a call to loyalty, and it's based on two things, who God is and what God has done. And so first, who God is. In verse 2, God says this, I am the Lord your God. So the, the structure, the literary structure of the Ten Commandments, and really the law overall, follows the structure of ancient covenant. So this is not just a covenant sort of in an idea that the structure is actually a covenant. And when an, an ancient covenant was written, this is, this is how it would go down. So when there was a great king who was entering into a covenant with lesser rulers, it would start by, this covenant would start by saying, I am this great king. So it would start with, hey, this is the king. And why? Because it would establish whose authority. Who is the covenant Lord? Who is the one making this covenant? Who is the one that obedience is due? Who, who is the, at the top of the ladder, so to speak, in the midst of this covenant? And so the Lord is beginning this covenant with his people by establishing, I am the Lord. This is who I am. And this is so important to recognize because what is God doing? God is stating who he is. God is stating he is the Lord, he is the king, and this is who he is. Now, understand that when God says, I am the Lord, there's a bit of a callback here. God is using his covenantal name, Yahweh. And this is a callback to Exodus 3, that when God revealed himself to Moses, he gave Moses his name. This is my name. And again, this shows the personal relationship God has with his people. We're on a first name basis here. We're on a first name basis. And so he says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am your covenant Lord. I am your God. A beautiful show of relationship. But at the same time, God's name reveals to us who he is. The name Yahweh, which in your Bibles, whenever you see the Lord capitalized, that is in the Hebrew, Yahweh, God's name, is the, the form of that is the Hebrew to be. It's a verb. It's a verb form, to be. This is where we get I am. God is saying I am. What's your name? I am. Yahweh. What is underneath all of that? It is rich in meaning. It is multi-layered in meaning. But here's the, here's the essence if we try to capture this as best we can in human words. I am. I am the one who eternally exists. I am the one who was and is and will be. I am the one who is self-sufficient and self-sustaining. I have existence in and of myself. If you remember back in Exodus 3, the bush was burning, but it was not consuming the bush. Why? To show that fire didn't need the bush to burn. That fire was not being sustained by anything else. It was self-existing. I am. I exist. I am self-sufficient. No higher authority no higher being, no higher glory, no higher majesty. He has existence in himself. He needs nothing and is dependent upon nothing. Yahweh, I am the one who created all things. The one who defines reality. The one who defines what is good and evil, what is true and false. Yahweh, I am the one who defines identity and meaning and purpose of all things, the one who has created and set in order all that exists. Yahweh, I am, the one who is sovereign and control, controls all things, the one who brings life and blessing and reward and the one who brings judgment. In the name of the Lord, in the name Yahweh, we see who God is. We see his nature, we see his character, we see his holiness and his glory and his authority established. And listen, is this not, is this not the very definition of God? If you, if you think of what, what is God, what is the definition of God? Is not God the highest authority and power? 
Is not God the one who creates, the one who defines right and wrong, the one who determines meaning and purpose? Is not God the centerpiece of all that exists and from which all that does exist gets its understanding of who it is and what it is and why it is? Is it not God who establishes those things? And, in, and if the Lord is this great, this powerful, if the Lord is the creator and he has ultimate authority, ultimate glory, if he is the one that defines all things, if this is who he is, then you better believe he deserves all of our loyalty. Like if there is no one higher, no one more glorious, no one more powerful, no one that has created all things, no one that has defined all things, if he is the one that has set all of this, then he deserves all our loyalty. He deserves our full obedience because of who he is. Full stop. Who else could you be more obedient to? Who else would be worthy of more of your obedience, more of your loyalty? If he is the highest and the greatest, if he is the ultimate, and this is what the Lord is establishing. I am the Lord your God. I am, I am. I am the height of all things. Now, Israel needed to be told to have no other gods because, well, they're going to live among nations that have false gods. They had been rescued out of Egypt. Egypt had a whole host of false gods. They were traveling in the wilderness. They were going to encounter nations that had a whole host of false gods. When they entered in the promised land, they were going to be surrounded by a bunch of nations that had a host of false gods. And so there were going to be competing gods, even though there, isn't, there aren't other gods, as Scripture says. There's not uh, it's not like Mount Olympus as the, the Greeks and Romans understood it. It's not like the Egyptians understood it. There's no God next to God and they're all kind of competing for power. No, there is only one true God. But there are other things that people can worship as God. There are false gods. There are competing gods. And Israel, because they were fallen sinners, tempted to chase after these other gods. They were going to be tempted. And boy, if you know the history of Israel, it was a mess. Terrible mess. Not long after God gives them the Ten Commandments and Moses goes up on the mountain, Moses is going to come back down and what is he going to find them doing? Worshiping a false god. This is a problem over and over and over again in Israel's history. And so God is right to start here. Hey, be loyal to me and no one else. Be loyal to me and no one else. So here's the question for us too. Who is our God? Who are we most loyal to? It's a simple question to discover who's your God. Who are you most loyal to? Who are you most obedient to? Take it a little further. Who or what defines your identity? Like when you think about who you are, what defines that? Who defines that? The person who defines that for you is your God. Who defines your meaning and purpose in life? Like when you think about what you're giving your life to, what your life means, who defines that? The person or thing that defines that, that's your God. Who are you most devoted to? Who do you give most of your thought and emotional energy towards? Who do you give your time and your resources towards? Like, who is it that captures your heart? Like, who do you think is most glorious, most awesome? Who is the one when you think about him, just like, whoa. Like, when you start to ask those questions, the answer will show you who your God is. And friends, when we're honest about our hearts, we will realize that far too often, sadly, it's not Yahweh. Far too often, our hearts will chase after false gods. And look, there are plenty of false gods in the form of false religion in our world. We, we live in a far more diverse culture. We, we have access to multiple cultures. We can travel around the world. And so it's very easy for us to be exposed and to encounter and interact with all kinds of other religions. Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, New Age mysticism, astrology, you name it. There are many, many false religions chasing after false gods. And these religions have lots of power and lots of organizational structure and lots of influence. There are also the false gods of uh, heretical Christianity, like Mormonism and Jehovah Witnesses. 
no matter what they will tell you, they do not follow the God of the Bible. There is no compatibility with false gods and false religions in Scripture and the gospel. But here's the thing. You, you, you may be tempted towards those things. And if you are, again, let me, let me explain to you, that is not the path to following the one true God. That is not aligning with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That will not lead you to eternal life. That will not lead you to a relationship with the one true God. As much as those things exist in our world, in our culture, United States of America, Bellevue, Nebraska, 2023 heading into 2024, the greater threats, the greater temptations are not so much false religions, but the false gods of things like wealth and success, comfort and pleasure, sex and pleasure, relationships, your job. Whatever it is that that we devote our entire heart to, the things that we look to to find our identity, the things that we look to to find joy and meaning and purpose, the thing that we believe that if we do not have this, if we do not chase after this, if this is not present in our life, then we're going to crumble and fall apart and we have no hope. Friends, our culture, we, we, may, we may think, well, I don't, I don't follow false religions. And all the while, we're following, following false gods. Again, we have to ask the question, who most has our loyalty? Who most has our obedience? Who defines our identity? Who defines our meaning and purpose? What gives us most life and joy? And when we think about, when we devote ourselves and give our energy towards, what is it on the other side of that? Answer that question, and you will answer who your God is. Now, who God is alone, that is, that is sufficient for our loyalty. He is that glorious. He is that great. Full stop. But he doesn't leave it there. We have all the more reason to be loyal to him because of what he has done. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. So here's another feature of ancient covenant documents. The great king would say, hey, I am the great king. And then it would be, here is what I have done. Here are my great deeds that warrant this covenant, that warrant your obedience to me. And here's what the Lord has has done. I am the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. The great and glorious I am, the eternally existent one, the one who depends on nothing and needs nothing. In his free love and grace and mercy, he rescued and redeemed a people. He didn't have to do that. He didn't need to do that. But he did. Out of his free love and grace, he rescued and redeemed a people. He was faithful and mighty to save. And friends, it was not a small salvation. Do you know if you search the annals of ancient history, and if you read all of the the texts of ancient religion, you will not find an account of a God rescuing a people by overthrowing a world superpower, completely wiping out their army, and then establishing this people and giving them a land. You won't find it. Utterly unique in history. Utterly, utterly unique among the ancient religions of the world. What God had done for Israel, the salvation, the rescue, the redemption that he had done was greater than anything else. Far greater. Far more power. When he flexed his glory, when he flexed his grace and his love, he brought a rescue and a redemption the world had never seen. This is why Israel This is why Israel had no choice but to be loyal. What do you do when someone saves your life to that extent? When someone has rescued you to that extent, oh, the only right response is loyalty. The only right response is obedience. I I think of, um, so one of my favorite movies growing up as a kid was um, the Kevin Costner version of Robin Hood. You guys seen this movie? It was like early 90s. I mean, I, I watch it. It doesn't, it doesn't really hold up now if you watch it, so I'm not going to recommend you go and watch it. I mean, the only thing good about that movie is Alan Rickman as the sheriff of Nottingham. He's brilliant in that. You can tell he's just having a lot of fun. So it's not a great movie, but it's got a great soundtrack. But um, anyway, there, 
part of the movie, part of the movie, one of the most compelling parts of the movie is the relationship between Kevin Costner's Robin Hood and Morgan Freeman's Azim. And early in the movie, Robin rescues Azim where they're over in Jerusalem and he rescues, his, rescues him, he saves him, saves his life. And so the rest of the movie, Azim is like, I am committed to you. I am following you wherever you go until I can repay my debts. Utterly and completely committed to the one who saved his life. It was the only proper response in his mind for me to be a good person, for me to, be an, uh, to, to, to follow my faith and my commitment, for me to uphold what is right and true and good, I must commit myself to you. That's the only response when someone saves your life to such an extent. And here the Lord is calling Israel to obedience. First, this is who I am. This is how great, this is how glorious, this is how above all things that I am. But also, I've rescued and redeemed you. I've saved you so that you could be in relationship with me, so you could know me. He rescued and redeemed them for their good, yes, but also to bring them into the depth of relationship with him, to be loyal to him, to obey him, to follow him in all things. And so this is another aspect of deity that our hearts are drawn to. Not, Not only do we look to things to find identity and meaning and purpose? Like we also, there's this, this way that we, we look to things to fix what's broken in us, to restore what's been broken, to, to, to find a way to experience atonement because we know when we're honest, we've blown it. And when we blow it, we look for ways to atone and to redeem and to make up for it. We also are looking for blessing. Like how do I find blessing in this world with so much that's wrong in the world, where do I find blessing? What, what things do I need to do to experience blessing? So we're always looking for a God to bless us if we perform enough for them. And if I do the right things, this God will give me what I want. If I do the right things, this God will fix what's broken in me and hopefully will fix what's broken in the world. So there's this sense in which we are looking to a God to give us, to bless us, and to fix us. And here the Lord has laid out for Israel Hey, I've redeemed and I've rescued you. I have fixed what is broken and I'm going to continue to fix and rescue and redeem you. And and if you listen to me long enough, you're going to hear a promise to rescue and redeem and fix all that's broken in the world one day. So the Lord held out this for Israel. And so here's another question for us, friends. Where do you go in hopes that you will be fixed? Like when you think of what's broken in you, you think of the ways in which you are sinful and you are dysfunctional and you're sideways in life. When you mess up and you, you, you make a mess of things, what do you do to fix that? What's your hope? Like what's your hope that you will grow and you will grow out of whatever dysfunction that you're experiencing? Like what, what, where's your hope in that? When you look at the world and you look at all that's broken in the world, like what's your hope that's, that's going to be made right one day? What hope do you have for salvation, for rescue? Are you looking to another God? Are you looking to yourself? Where are you looking for blessing? Man, if I work hard enough, if I perform enough, blessing. And here's the the dark side of that. Here's the dark side of idolatry. Here's the dark side of following after false gods. False gods will always exact a toll on you that will wreck and ruin in you. Never leads to life. It'll always be more and more and more. Think of it, just to give one example. If you have been given over to the God of performance, like if I do enough good, then I will have identity, I'll have meaning and purpose, people will like me, whatever it is. You're seeking fulfillment in working hard, making a lot of money, success, whatever your performance is driving you towards. When is enough enough? It's never enough. And then when you mess up, what happens? What do you need to do? I need to perform more. I need to do more. And what happens? You keep grinding and grinding and grinding and grinding. 
and you wear yourself out and you wear yourself down. You sometimes literally kill yourself trying to find an identity, trying to find blessing, trying to atone and make up for the mistakes that you have made. Is that the kind of God worthy of serving? Is that a God that leads to blessing in life? And the list goes on and on. If you're chasing after a false god, understand they will demand more and more and more and exact more and more of a toll and you'll never be able to atone. You'll never be able to satisfy that God. You'll ever be able to do enough. And here's the other thing. It will always start with you. It will always start with you and what you're able to do. Entirely different when it comes to the one true God of the universe. Where did this start? This started with the grace of God. This started with God initiating covenant with man, with people. It started with him rescuing and redeeming Israel when they had no power, no ability to do it, when they didn't even deserve it. How did he make atonement? Did he demand more and more and more for them? No, he provided atonement for them. When they needed rescue and redemption and cleansing, did he demand more and more and more from them? No, he provided it for them. Friends, Yahweh, the one true God, is not putting you on a hamster wheel to grind every last ounce out of you. He's a God of grace, a God of forgiveness, a God of mercy, a God of love. The things he calls you to is not to grind you down to bits, but to bring you to life. We are killing ourselves chasing after false gods. We are, reckoning, we are wrecking and ruining ourselves chasing after false gods. And here's the, the good news in all of this. Like what God did in the Old Testament, what we've been saying over and over and over again, what the great I am did in the Old Testament, the rescue and redemption that Israel experienced in Exodus is a signpost to what Jesus Christ has done for us. Here is the beauty of this. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus tell the Pharisees in the Gospel of John? Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus name drops Yahweh, not like I just know Yahweh, we, he, he and I are they're tight. It's I am. Jesus is claiming the divine covenant name for himself. And what did Jesus do? Did Jesus come and grind it out of people? making demands, putting heavy burdens on them, making them perform self-atonement? No. Jesus provided salvation himself. He laid down his life for you and me. He died in our place so that we could be forgiven and set free. He took the judgment that you and I deserved on himself so that we could experience the full and lasting forgiveness of God, so we could be transformed, so we could be brought to life, so we could know God as Father. The great I am has spared no expense. The great I am did not make demands of people to atone for themselves. The great I am is our atonement. Friends, this is the grace of God. This is the one true God and his goodness and his mercy to us. Why would we be loyal to any other God? Why would we be obedient to any other God? When God calls us to loyalty to him, when he calls us to obedience to him, he is doing so in light of the goodness and the glory and the grace that is in him. Behold who I am and what I have done and have no other gods before me. In the Hebrew, do not have other gods before me, it's literally have no other gods before my face. No other gods before my face. No other gods in my presence. Now here's the kicker in that. Where is God's presence? Everywhere. <laughs> Everywhere. Have no other gods before me in any place. And so this is an exhaustive in all places that you are. No other God, a comprehensive scope. No other gods. This is not just make Yahweh the top and then you can have, you know, this lesser God and this lesser God. You know, you have, you have a few lesser gods, but, but he's at the top. No, it's Yahweh and no one else. Our God completely and totally and utterly. Nowhere in your life is there to be another God. The greatness of who God is and what he has done demands our total and complete obedience. So in all of that, in all of that, as we, as we begin to, to kind of hit the home stretch here, how, how does all of that sit with you? 
How does this call to obedience and to loyalty to the one true God sit with you? Because too often, again, when we start talking about obedience, we start talking about loyalty, especially when we start dragging in the Ten Commandments, it, it, can, it can feel very quickly, man, this is, just, this is heavy. This, this feels very restrictive. I mean, most of the commandments are framed in the negative. Isn't, isn't that just like God being like super restrictive, heavy-handed, pressing down on us? Isn't, isn't, isn't that what God's about? The answer is no, not at all. One, as we just said, in light of the grace of God and what he has done to rescue and redeem us. It just shows completely, this is not about grinding us out. But also, listen, the Ten Commandments have been given to us to bring us to life. To to, to birth in us and to cultivate in us life. Here's another really cool feature of the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments are literally the ten words. Ten words given to Israel. That word, that that number ten, perfect, complete, firm foundation. We go all the way back to Genesis 1. There's this cool feature in Genesis 1. And God said, and God spoke, and God said, God spoke. You know how many times that shows up in Genesis 1? Ten. Ten times. And God said, and God spoke, the word of God establishing creation, firm, secure, foundation, right there, perfect. Ten times, God establishing creation with his word, and God said. Jump to the Ten Commandments, what is this? Ten perfect words of what? New creation. This is the foundation of new creation, the morality, the righteousness, the goodness of new creation that God is making in his people. Like the Ten Commandments are not about being restrictive, but about walking in life, flourishing, goodness, righteousness. All of this is meant so that we could live as we were intended to live in the fullness of our humanity. In his book on the Ten Commandments, J.I. Packer does this great thought experiment where he says, think about this. Like if, if society were to follow the Ten Commandments, what would happen to society? Like, what would happen to society if we all took the Ten Commandments seriously and by the grace of God and the power of God sought to live them out and be faithful to them? Well, just on the surface, here's some low-hanging fruit. Divorce rate would go down. Addiction rate would go down. Poverty rate would go down. The number of people incarcerated would go down. Number of people that are anxious and depressed, that would change. Like, there, there, there would be such a transformation in society that nothing short of revival would break out. Like We'd be like, what just happened? It would utterly and completely transform society for the good. This leads to life. This leads to flourishing. This leads to joy. This leads to what it truly means to walk in a God-given meaning and purpose. Like the Ten Commandments are life. And here's the other side of it too. Friends, when you don't follow the one true God, you're going to follow another God. Like we are wired to worship. It's going to happen. We're wired to worship. We cannot help but worship. We cannot help but find meaning and purpose in something. That's just who we are. And when we do not follow the one true God, there are going to be other gods that come in, either gods of our design and our choosing or gods of our culture that are going to make demands on us. They're going to try to instill fear in us and force us to bend the knee. And we see it happening all over the place. We see it happening all over the place in our society. We've removed the one true God from the, from the center, and now what do we have? Who are, who are these gods that are forcing themselves on top of us? Well, let's just start. I'll just list them off. Government. Does government not demand complete and total loyalty to you, from you? You will listen, you will obey, you will submit, and you will be shaped by what government tells you. There you go. How about, and this one might be a little controversial in some ways, how about this one? Environmentalism. (laughs) Listen, Christians, we should be the best stewards of the earth. This is God's world. He has given it to us. And listen, God is not going to one day destroy it and scrap it. No, he's going to recreate it. We love this world, and so we should be the best stewards of this world. So that aside, do you all see that, uh, that Apple ad, Mother Earth Apple ad? Do you guys see this? If you have not seen it, you should look it up. It is nothing short of earth worship. Bowing down, prostrating, 
to, God, to, to Mother Earth as a God? Do we not see people giving themselves over to a radical, rabid environmentalism? This is what happens, friends, when we remove the one true God. Here's another example. The ideology of transgenderism. Bearing down. You will submit to this. You will believe this. Do not speak against it. Do not blaspheme this. Are these not some of the gods that come into our world and what are they doing to us? Wrecking and ruining. Damaging and destroying. Now listen, all of those things involve people who we need to love, who we need to share the gospel with, who need Jesus, who are our neighbors, who are friends, who are family members. And so our posture is not one of anger and hostility and combativeness, but understand there are false gods that want you to bow the knee. There are false gods that are wanting to shape you. There are false gods that want to take your loyalty and obedience away from the one true God and put it on something else. And we have to take that seriously. We have to account for that. We cannot minimize those things. And how do we press against them? How do we push back against them? Well, we could always vote more, right? We could always put our hope in different governments. Hey, voting's good. Getting involved in government is awesome. Do it. But the way we combat false gods is by worshiping the one true God. The way we, com we combat false gods is when our loyalty and our obedience go to the one true God. So it starts here. It starts in our worship. It starts in how we devote our lives it starts in following the Ten Commandments. It starts in, in, in us as a people committing to walking out the words of the Lord, to walking out what it means to be a new creation. It starts here when we dedicate ourselves to loyalty to the Lord and obedience to the Lord. Now, having said all of that, here's something we also need to keep in mind. We need to recognize that obedience always has to start with loyalty. We don't earn salvation by keeping the Ten Commandments. In Luke 17, we read of a rich young ruler who, who comes to Jesus asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Here's what Jesus answers. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Jesus quotes to him the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth commandments. Feeling pretty, pretty confident? The, youth says, the young man says, I have kept all these for my youth, he said. Feeling pretty good about his performance. Hey, I'm doing these things. I'm good. But watch what Jesus does. When Jesus heard this, he told them, you still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. After he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. What does Jesus do? Jesus sort of like lays out these sort of the relational commandments, says you need to keep these, and he's like, I'm doing that, I'm doing that. And then what does Jesus call him back to? The first commandment. Where's your loyalty? Where's your loyalty? Sell all you have and follow me. It was a test of loyalty. Who most has your hearts? And the man was like, can't do it. He goes away because his loyalty was to his wealth. He kept those laws on his own terms. He kept those laws and was a good person in sort of the common grace way, but he was not loyal to Jesus. And friends, if we are going to properly keep the commandments, if we're going to properly walk in them as God has intended, it has to start with loyalty to God, loyalty to Christ. And what is that loyalty? Where does that loyalty start? It starts from turning from our sin and putting our faith in Christ. It's trusting him as our Savior and as our covenant Lord. It is looking to him to be our authority and our king. It is giving, us, giving our lives to him, everything that we are, everything that we, we own, everything, all, all of our, our hearts, all of our mind, our soul, our strength belong to him as we follow him and serve him. And so you can be keeping the commandments to the degree that a human is able to and not be loyal to Jesus. Who are you most loyal to? Who are you most obedient to? Another question is, why are you obedient? Are you obedient because you're trying to earn? Are you obedient so, so you can per be perceived as a certain type of person? Or are you obedient because you're loyal to the God who has saved you? So this morning, if you've never put your trust in Christ, if your God is a false God of something else, whether it be a false religion or the God of self, 
Friend, I just want, I want to say lovingly, but very clearly and directly, that God will not save you. That God will not lead to life. That God will ultimately lead to judgment. Turn from your sin. Put your faith, put your trust in the God who truly saves, who truly redeems. The God who didn't require you atone for yourself, but provided atonement himself. The God who's not only going to rescue and redeem you, but rescue and redeem this entire world. The God who truly is worthy of your worship, truly worthy of your hope, truly worthy of your loyalty and obedience. For those of us that do call on the name of the Lord, those of us that have put our trust in Christ, listen, we still struggle. We still struggle. There are ways in which we will chase after false gods. We still get caught up in things like performance. We still get caught up chasing wealth and success and comfort and pleasure. And we still find um, our identity and meaning and purpose and, and things other than the Lord. Like it happens. It's going to happen. We're going to struggle. But here's what we need to continually be doing. Continually be returning to the Lord. Coming back to that truth that God is a God who has saved us and redeemed us. He is the glorious one. He is the exalted one. There's no other God worthy of our loyalty and worthy of our obedience. Let us continue to come back and see what Jesus has done. Rehearse in the word. Go to him in prayer. Living out our faith so that the the, the trajectory of our life, the shape of our life, is pointed towards Christ. Friends, let us live out these commandments not out of a place of fear, not out of a place of trying to earn anything, but out of a place of loyalty, of love, of obedience, of grace, of joy. That's what God holds out for us. Life. Life. So as we continue to go through these these commandments, and as we hit each one, kind of going in depth into each one, there's, there's going to be plenty of things where we can celebrate grace and growth, and we can say, man, thankful that these things mark my life. But there's also going to be places where we're going to need to do some deep repentance. We're going to need to turn from some sin. We're going to need to be honest with ourselves. In all of that, what are we doing? We're returning back to this place. No other gods. No other gods worthy. No other gods have done what our God has done. And when we see that, when we return to that, when we fix our gaze on that, it's going to change us. It's going to change our hearts going to change our lives. So friends, true obedience starts with loyalty. Let us have no other gods. Amen? Let's pray.